So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be reading the fourth chapter of Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers, so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts, to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay, to show that his all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It is written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. And with that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. And therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So... We fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, and what is unseen is eternal. The word of God. When we are preparing uh, our series on, uh, on 2 Corinthians, um, I very often feel overwhelmed. Um, we read the scriptures and, first of all, I don't know if you found this as you've been reading them in the week, do you find them very difficult? <laughs> it's not just me then. Absolutely, that's great. And following that, 
not only are they difficult to understand, particularly to Corinthians, I think, is probably the most difficult of all of Paul's writings. Um, it's not only difficult to understand, but then when you understand it, the big question is how do we apply that to our lives today? And that's a huge question for us. So it's with fear and trepidation that both of us come here each week as we are working our way through, through this letter. And yet, there are incredible nuggets of gold. There are treasures in here, um, which we would miss, obviously, if we didn't uh, uh, study it together. <clears throat> so, we are on 2 Corinthians 4. This is the fifth study uh, together. And I suppose my first question for you this morning is, do you ever feel like giving up? Giving up your Christian faith, walking away from it. I don't know if you've ever got to that stage where you feel overwhelmed by circumstances, by the trials and the traumas of life, that you have no energy to take any more. <clears throat> Maybe people, people that you should have known better, people who are close to you have let you down. Maybe you have questioned whether everything is worth it. That is, all of the effort and the time and the personal sacrifices that you've made. Maybe once you were on fire for God. You prayed and you read your Bible daily. You heard God speak to you. You witnessed wonderful coincidences, which obviously were not coincidences at all. But it was God intervening in your life. You shared your faith with friends. You gave your time, your energy and your finance to serve the purposes of God. But that is no longer your experience. You've changed. You are perhaps a shadow of the person that you once were. And there are days that you even question whether God is there at all. Well, you're not alone. You're not alone in two respects. First of all, you're not alone because God promises never to leave us or forsake us. And he promises to be our refuge and our strength and an ever-present help in times of trouble. And irrespective of whether you feel God's presence or not, he, he is there. But secondly, you are not alone in the sense that you are experiencing what every other believer at some time or other on their journey of faith experiences. Those times when we are required to trust God in a way which is deeper, more profound, and perhaps more real than when the skies are blue and the sun is shining. Those times are times when our faith grows and it matures. And we also have the opportunity, believe it or not, of becoming more like the Lord Jesus in those times. And it's an opportunity for God to chisel away at those rough edges of our character and personality. And that's the thing I love about the Bible. The Bible tells it as it is. And sometimes we see our reflection in the words that we read. And particularly to Corinthians. And Paul is not afraid here to, uh, to make himself emotionally vulnerable and to tell it as it is. And in these first seven chapters, I'm sure we're getting the, the gist of what's happening now. Because in these opening seven chapters, he is talking about his own ministry. And he is defending his ministry uh, against the church that he actually founded. And this was incredibly painful for him because he poured his life into them. And yet he was now having to defend his ministry against the same church. And as we've uh, discovered in recent weeks, some of the, the Corinthian Christians responded positively to Paul. And others said, this guy Paul is not to be trusted. 
Some of them claimed that he wasn't a genuine apostle and they attacked his leadership and they accused him of inconsistencies and impugned his motives and questioned his very credentials of whether he was God's man. And Paul, when you look at him, he was poor, he earned a meagre living with manual labour, he was under constant persecution and suffering, he was homeless, he was criticised for not being a very impressive speaker. And when the Corinthian church were exposed to other more wealthy, more impressive speakers and leaders, they started to think less and less and less of Paul and actually became ashamed of him. And then Paul, we haven't started the chapter by the way yet, Okay, Paul starts the chapter with these words. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. And then almost like two bookends in this chapter, in verse 1 and verse 16, we find those words again. Therefore, we do not lose heart. And the very fact that Paul has to write these words twice might suggest that there actually were times when he was tempted to lose heart. And when we know, when we think of the trials that he went through, because we read of them later on in this book, you know, trials, spiritual trials, emotional trials, physical trials, we can sort of understand what he is saying here, that this guy was as normal as we are, he was flesh and blood like us, and he was tempted to, to give up, to lose heart. Some weeks ago, I I came across some horrendous uh, statistics on American pastors. Now, there's nothing wrong with American pastors, no more so than British pastors or any other pastors around the world. But it was just that I had some statistics on these pastors. And I just wanted to uh, give you some of them. That in America, 18,000 pastors leave church ministry each year. 80% of pastors feel discouraged in their roles. 50% of pastors are so discouraged that they would leave the ministry if they had another way of making a living. 71% of pastors stated that they were burned out and battled with depression. You should look at you. That was a joke. That was a joke. A bad joke. Only one in ten pastors will actually retire as a minister. So it's 10% will last the course. Now those stats highlight the kind of pressures that very often Christian leaders experience. And I would suggest to you that Paul's experience, as we are reading it here, was considerably more difficult than any pastor or church leader I've ever known. And in this chapter, Paul is talking about himself and his ministry in declaring the good news, the gospel of Jesus to the Gentiles. But I think that these words also as we dig deeply, also have practical application to all of our lives, irrespective of whether we're in church ministry or other leadership roles or not. And the first thing that uh, Paul does uh, when he is tempted to lose heart is that he reminds himself of his calling. He looks back at his calling. And that is so, so, so important. In 1984... I believe that God was calling me, I was working in local government at the time, God was calling me to become a pastor. So Julie and I prayed about it and, you know, it was was a really big thing for us because, uh, you know, we just set up home, we had two young children and um, we went to speak to my pastor in Swansea Elim Church. 
And uh, I thought he would be absolutely delighted, you know, this young man who is hearing the call of God and going off to follow him, such obedience. Well, I was actually quite surprised by what he said to me, because it was nothing at all like that. His words were, if there's anything else that you can do with your life, do it. (laughs) That's quite wonderful advice, actually, because, you know, as I look back on it now, You know, there was such wisdom in his words. And what he was saying here is that if I was unsure about my calling as a pastor, then I would have nothing to stand on when the difficulties came, as inevitably they would at some time. And that was good advice. Thank you, Dennis Phillips. So this is what's happening, I believe, in verse 1. And I'll need to unpack this a little bit to explain it to you. So we got this, uh, this uh, verse, therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, says Paul, we do not lose heart. Now, if you've been around any time, you have heard me say this before. Whenever you see a therefore in scripture, ask what it is. Therefore. Absolutely. Good. Uh, Because what Paul is doing when he uses this word therefore, right at the start of the chapter, he is making a link from what he has just said to what he is about to say. Okay? And we need to remind ourselves that when Paul wrote these letters, he didn't write in verses and chapters. I know it makes it easier for us to turn to the bit where we want to find that special verse and so forth. And sometimes I think it actually gets in the way to have chapters and verses because when he wrote it, he wrote it as a letter. And you don't write chapters and verses in letters. And this week's study is a continuation of what Dan spoke about last week, which is a continuation of what we've been speaking about in recent weeks. So the first thing we need to do is to remind ourselves of last week's study. Chapter 3 started with some of the Corinthians wanting Paul to provide letters of commendation for himself, to verify that he was truly an apostle sent from God. Now, Paul... In hearing this from the church that he founded, is absolutely flabbergasted. He doesn't need such letters. Surely the proof of his ministry is the Corinthians themselves. He founded the church for heaven's sake. And there wouldn't have been a church there if it hadn't been for him. And he informed these Corinthians that they themselves were his living letter. Not with pen and ink, but with the Spirit of God. Carved not on tablets of stone like the Ten Commandments, but carved on human hearts. And from here, Paul veers off into this incredible chapter of comparisons. Comparisons between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. He says that the Old Covenant brought condemnation. But the message which God had given him, this message of new life and renewed hearts through the work of the Holy Spirit, actually brought righteousness. The old covenant contained a certain glory. But the new covenant, which makes us right with God, is far more glorious. The old covenant was fading away, it was disappearing, it was going to be replaced. But the new covenant is there forever, it's eternal. Okay, question. How did the Old Covenant bring this condemnation? 
Now, I shared something with my life group uh, this week, which uh, um, I hope will be helpful to you as well, um, about the, the, the Old Testament, including the commandments, that that is like a grumpy old husband. Okay? Okay. Now, this, <laughs> this grumpy old husband... keeps telling his wife that uh, what to do. And he tells her how to do it. And he's always looking at her faults and picking out her faults all the time. And he never lifts a finger to help. I hope I'm not describing anyone's <laughs> husband. Please, I don't want to know. Now, this grumpy old husband... Keep shouting out, honour God, honour God. Don't steal, don't tell lies, don't commit adultery, don't covet what anybody else. Don't, don't, don't. Lots of rules. No encouragement. Never any help with them. And what makes matters worse? What makes matters worse? Is he's always right. Does that sound like anyone you know? We're not talking of humans here. We're talking of the Old Covenant. We're talking of the Old Testament. We are talking of the, the Ten Commandments, okay? Okay. Right. The New Covenant is like being married... You never thought theology was so interesting, did you? The new, com- uh, the, the, the new covenant is like being married to a wonderful new husband, totally different. Instead of trying to follow a lot of rules, which we don't have the power to keep, God, by his Holy Spirit, has actually written those rules on our hearts. And unlike that old husband who never lifted a finger to help, our new husband, the Spirit of God, can't do enough for us. I didn't expect that reaction, okay. His standards are just as high as the grumpy old guy that we were married to before. In fact, this new husband is so encouraging. He never seems to wag his finger. He never seems to raise his voice at our inadequacies. And this new husband has won our hearts with his love. And he encourages us and enables us to live lives honouring to God. I'm going to get to my point in a moment. So when Paul says in verse 1, Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart, he is referring to this new covenant, he is referring to the ministry of the gospel through the power of the Spirit that God has commissioned him to preach. And he is saying this ministry or new way It's amazing. It's powerful. And it works in changing people's lives, which could never have been said for the old covenant. You see, it isn't anything like the old way of trying to please God through the commandments and failing every time. And the amazing thing is that God had called Paul and given him the responsibility 
of proclaiming this life-transforming message, not because of anything that Paul had done, but all because of God's mercy. In other words, Paul didn't deserve this privilege. Now catch this. Paul is saying here that he will not lose heart, even though his life is really tough. Why? Because he has personally experienced and has also been commissioned by God to declare this wonderful, life-transforming message. How could he lose heart? He'd already seen God's work at power within his own life. How could he lose heart? Because he had seen God working through him and touching the lives of so many people throughout the Roman Empire. And this so applies to us today. You see, when we are tempted to give up and to walk away and to lose heart, we need to remind ourselves that the amazing God who has called us to himself has given us a new way. He has given us a new message of being right with God and the ability to live supercharged Holy Spirit lives, which is exactly what the last song that we were singing was all about. So when you're tempted to lose heart, I think the bottom line of what I'm saying is go back to your foundations. Go back to what God has done in your life and what God has called you to and rest on that. Okay. That's verse 1. 17 more to go. (laughs) It's a long time for coffee yet. Okay. Okay, I'll try to be quicker with some of the others. That was important, I felt. Verses 2 to 6. And please, 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 bring your Bibles. Yeah, we can put some stuff up on screen, but bring your Bibles on a Sunday morning. Even if it's in, you know, your, your phone or your iPad, or, because it's so important to, to study this together. And one of the great benefits, I think, of um, doing a series like Dan and I are doing week by week is that we're all taking each other's hands and we are walking through this passage together. Because so often, you know, when we have our Bibles, um, you know, and we, we read it, we don't always get it. And then the beauty is that we meet in life groups in the week and we discover further. Because I believe, you know, that the Bible is to be read and studied in community. You know, it's, it's only since the printing press that we've had our own personal Bibles. Before that, it was always in community. I think we learn so much more, don't we? Well, okay, it's two of us. <laughs> Suit yourselves. <laughs> okay. Okay, where was I? Verses 2 to 6. Paul tells the church at Corinth that he wasn't tempted to change his message um, as it appears that the false teachers were doing. They were changing their message there. And he says here that in, in verse 2 that he has renounced secret and shameful ways and he doesn't use deception or distort the word of God. And that's a really important message here for us uh, today, what he says. The false teachers had become so popular in Corinth that, uh, sorry, the false teachers who had become so popular, they were being unfaithful, actually, to the, the, the message of the gospel. They altered it. They made it more palatable, easier to accept, which in turn undoubtedly helped them to become more popular than Paul, who was actually faithful to to that message. 
And you can ask any pastor, he or she will tell you that there are some topics which are really, really difficult to speak on, uh, such as sexual ethics in the 21st century for Christians. That is huge, hugely difficult to speak on. Why? Because there is often a conflict with what is generally accepted in society. The world in which we live has its values which are very, very different to the values of God's kingdom. And there's always a temptation because, you know, pastors are human beings. There's always a temptation to soft sell that sometimes more difficult and more radical message of the kingdom of God. Paul then talks about another factor that brings discouragement. It is when people who hear the message of Christ but do not respond. Now, as a pastor, that I think is probably right up there in one of my greatest discouragements. You know, the fact that some people never seem to get it. You can preach and you can teach and you can talk to them and you can explain the gospel till you're blue in the face, but they still have that blank look. I know some people can't help it. You know, it's probably genetic or something like that. But, you know, I'm not talking about that. It's where the spiritual penny hasn't dropped. Nothing is getting through. The curtains are open, but there's no one in the house. And Paul says here in verse 4, that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And the reason he's just mentioned there for that is that they are blinded by the God of this age, Satan. Now, I don't know about you, I have a passion to see everyone come to know Jesus and have faith in him, to know him and to walk with him and to journey through life with him. And I always get discouraged when people, for example, on an alpha course who just seem apathetic or resistant, and then they eventually decide not to come at all. Conversely, I, um, I would say it's probably the thrill of my life when I observe people coming alive to the gospel. It does me good, I tell you. This week, one of our new Alpha friends admitted that her mind was still in a swirl about God and she wasn't really sure about a lot of things and she admitted freely that she didn't understand a whole load of stuff. But then she went on in the conversation to say that in recent times, since the time that she's been on the Alpha course, that she started looking around at nature and she just had an overwhelming sense to give thanks. But she wasn't really sure to whom. (laughs) And realised it was probably God, the creator of all of this, for the trees and the birds and the order and the design. And what thrilled me, because I could see that new light dawning. There was new light coming into her life. She was beginning to see things in a new way. And then she said, I bought a Bible this week. I have no idea where to start. (laughs) You see... What Paul is saying here is that the gospel is not to blame for some people not accepting it. The gospel is not to blame for some people not accepting it. The message doesn't need changing. doesn't need updating for the 21st century. It doesn't need altering to make it more socially acceptable. The gospel is the gospel. Is the good news. And people have tried and failed over years to somehow change this message. But in doing so, they fail because to change the message is to lose its power. Paul, on another occasion, said 
that the gospel is the power of God in saving every, everyone who believes. I tell you what, I'm, I'm up against it this morning. It's so much here. I think we could be on this chapter probably a month. But we're not going to be, okay? So let's just move on. Verse 5. What we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as servants. In other words, he is saying there is no self-promotion going on here. And there's an awful lot of self-promotion going on with the, the false teachers within the Corinthian church. And then we come to verses um, 7 to 9. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. Now, I think that probably, if you have your Bibles, I would think at least half the people in this room, in your own personal Bibles, will have those verses underlined. They're probably amongst the most well-known verses that have brought great comfort to people over the last 2,000 years. We love quoting them. We have fridge magnets with that verse on them and so forth. So what's going on here? The false teachers, because we can't lose sight of these, because Paul is writing, defending his ministry, but in the background you've got all these false teachers. And the false teachers of Corinth were great orators, and they were impressive leaders. And they were men who elevated themselves. And at the same time, they, they despised Paul for being a unimpressive public speaker and leader. And it's interesting that Paul doesn't argue against their view of him. That's interesting. You'd think he'd sort of defend his corner. Say, yeah, I'm not that bad, or whatever. But he doesn't do that at all. Rather, he shows that true Christian leadership isn't about status, it isn't about ability, but actually it's about humility and servant-heartedness. You see, as we've said in a few weeks now, it isn't about trying to be impressive, but it's about pointing to the one who truly is impressive, Jesus. Yeah? And in these verses, Paul doesn't argue against their low view of him. He actually agrees with what they're saying and says that the messenger isn't that important uh, as they think, but the gospel is what really matters. I love the message and... Um, uh, I don't know if you've got copies of uh, the paraphrase of the Bible, which is the message. It's, it, it's great. Sometimes, you know, there are some passages which are very, very hard to get your head around. And it, it does help if you read the message, which is written by a, an absolutely brilliant uh, theologian by the name of Eugene Peterson. And this is what he puts for these verses. He says, we carry this pres pres precious message around in the unadorned, clay pots of our ordinary lives. That is to prevent anyone from confusing God's incomparable power with us. As it is, there's not much chance of that. <laughs> and I'm sure I can almost see Paul there giving a little chuckle as he, as he writes that. So what Paul does here is he sticks, takes the sting out of the argument and he says to them in so many words, you don't think I'm very impressive, do you? It's funny that, because neither do I. Neither do I. But don't let that concern you, because this fragile and adorned clay pot isn't what's important. It's the treasure, 
that's found inside it that is. And sometimes we can think too highly of ourselves. Often in the Christian press you can read of some evangelist or some pastor who has such great acclaim of international renown, attracts large audiences and so forth. And I'm sure that you've, you've, you've come across that sort of stuff. About 20 years ago, I was invited to speak in a Bible conference. Yeah, I expected. Yes, exactly, exactly. Come on, that's right. Yeah, that's right. I had absolutely no idea whatsoever why they had invited me. I was scared stiff. However, when the advertisements started coming out for this particular conference, with my name and others uh, alongside, uh, there were the words internationally acclaimed Bible teachers, or words to that effect. <laughs> I tell you what, it was not only embarrassing, I'm, you know, I can tell you guys, and I'm not too embarrassed about that. It was embarrassing, though, to see that. But worse than that, it was untrue. I'd been to Wales. <laughs> and I'd been to England. And I've been to Northern Ireland once. Oh, it was long before that. Yes. So. It's too cold. And to tell you the truth, is more than that. I want to cross the road and listen to myself. Which is the same today as well. But there we go. I would have been much happier... If they had put Stephen Jonathan, jar of clay, broken pot, or even cracked pot, uh, cracked pot, <laughs> get that one right, <laughs> yes, I think that probably would have been much, much closer to the truth. You see, we, we, we can laugh at this, well, I can laugh about it now, all these years on, but the point that I'm making, it isn't for us, whoever we are, to be impressive. It is the point of the one, Jesus, who is impressive. And I think that the organisers of such conferences really need to spend more time in Paul's letters. Paul continues, he says that he is hard-pressed, perplexed, persecuted and struck, struck down. Now, apart from being persecuted, the other three experiences are commonplace in our lives. Although, I would also say that the majority of Christians throughout the world are, in fact, persecuted for their faith in Christ. And when we become Christians, we're not delivered from hard times and times of hardship and difficulty. God doesn't sort of wrap us up in cotton wool. You know, we experience the same stuff of life. None of us is exempt. But just even for a moment, imagine if we had a different view. Imagine that you believed that when you came to faith, that you were exempt from troubles and trials and difficulties. And if that, would, if that was the case, if you believed that stuff, and then you had all this stuff of life, you know, the difficulties, you would probably lose heart very, very quickly. Because you'd be saying, well, what have I done wrong, God? What have I got wrong here? All of this is coming my way. I'm not supposed to have this, am I? But if we expect trials and difficulties on the journey, then we will be both more understanding and resilient when they come our way. And Paul mentions here, I put it in red for you, there are four but-nots. 
We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not in despair. We're persecuted, but not abandoned. We're struck down, but not destroyed. As someone put it, when you're at the end of your rope, you're not at the end of hope. Our perishable bodies might be decaying. We might be subject to suffering and to sin. We might be struck down and hard-pressed. But God never, ever abandons us. Let's move on quickly. Verse 10. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive and always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Now, I found those, diff- those verses very, very difficult to understand this week. And they're there before you. What do you make of them? What on earth is that all about? And I needed to read these, ver- these verses a number of times and in different versions as well of the Bible to see if I could grasp what they were saying. And what Paul seems to be saying here is that he and other true apostles constantly lived in the face of death. But this ultimately resulted in the salvation for the Corinthians. That God can take, in other words, this fragile clay pot like Paul and use his sufferings ultimately for good. Did you know that in the first 12 years of the 21st century, <coughs> there have been 69 movements of people turned to Christ from the Islamic faith? Now that doesn't sound very impressive. In 12 years, 69 movements away from Islamic faith to follow Christ. But let me tell you, according to the research that I was reading, what a movement is, is to be defined as. A movement is seen where at least, at least 100 churches are being planted and where there are 1,000 baptized Christians, at least. In many of these movements, there are far more, many thousands of baptized new Christians that have come from Islam. So when you understand that in 12 years that there were 69 movements so what we're probably talking about is a 100,000 Muslims or more and that's a conservative number becoming followers of Jesus and in many of the countries in which they became followers of Jesus were countries where there was the death penalty if anybody moved away from Islam I find these figures incredible So what's causing them to become Christians? Again, that's a whole sermon in itself. And I just haven't got time for that this morning. I think that partly it's the disillusionment that Muslims are feeling with groups like ISIS. That they're incredibly embarrassed by, hurt by. But also the way that Christians, persecuted Christians, are responding with love to those who are persecuting them. How radical is that? Loving your enemy. I wonder who ever thought of that. You see, it's reminiscent of the early church again. The greater the persecution, the greater the Christian conversions. And what Paul is saying here, I believe, is that when facing a difficult situation, 
and for him it was living daily in the face of death, good can actually come about from it. That is, if you respond to the trial in the right way. And maybe if you attempted to lose heart, a way to encourage yourself is to remember that God can make a positive out of every negative. That God, the God that we worship, can bring mass conversions from terrible persecution. The God that we worship can bring a resurrection from a crucifixion. That is our God. A God who can use the suffering of our lives for good. For he is the God who works all things together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Okay. Time is nearly gone. I need to come into land. Okay. Verse 16. Therefore, we do, no, do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now, Paul, like most preachers, started off on one subject, took a couple of detours, and is coming back to the subject that he started with. There's an old saying, you would have heard it, I'm sure, uh, Christians are so heavenly-minded they have no u- earthly use. And sadly, for some Christians, that, that, that's true. You know, they're so sort of up there in this other world that they can't relate to what's going around. But I would say that the majority of Christians and the Christians that I know, it's, it, it, it's not that way at all. In fact, for most Christians, I would say that having a heavenly perspective inspires us to actually become more useful in this life. Paul was inspired by his views of eternity, which caused him to live the life that he did and to take the gospel in the way that he did to the Roman Empire. And those down through the ages as well. Those perhaps who have made the greatest impact upon this planet have been those people with a heavenly perspective. Paul gives us three contrasts here. Let's just quickly go through these. First of all, it's a contrast between the inner and the outer. He says, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. In other words, our our outer body is decaying. There's no harm looking after your body. You know, for some people it's jogging. For me it's squash. For others it's watching their weight and, and so forth. But no one can put off the inevitable that one day we will return to dust. However, says Paul, the real you and the real me can be renewed every day. Yeah, wrinkles may come, chins might multiply. Amelie said to me the other day, she said, uh, she, she was staring at my face, I said, well, what are you doing? She said, Grandad, why have you got two smiles? <laughs> Cheeky girl. really caught me by surprise you know it was <laughs> oh dear me. right your eyesight might fade your energy might decrease but the good news is that your soul the real you can keep being refreshed in God let me tell you something that I've observed people who don't have a vibrant Christian faith 
tend to grow old inwardly and outwardly much quicker than those who are being renewed and refreshed by the Holy Spirit who is working in their lives. They just seem to be different people of a different perspective on life and they're alive and full of light and joy and energy of the spirit, if not actually of the physical body. There's a contrast between the, the present light and momentary troubles and the glory of eternity. You see, in the light of eternity, where one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day, our lives on earth are very short. 70, 80, 90, sometimes more, sometimes less. So whenever the going gets tough, then we are swamped by troubles. Paul's advice to us is look up. Look up, not look down. And get a glimpse of what is coming our way. There's a great verse. One of my favorite verses is found in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. It says there, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. In other words, as things balance out in the scales of heaven, even the worst suffering on earth will pale into insignificance when we get there. We won't know anything about it. I'll tell you what, that's one of my favorite verses because many years ago when I was a young pastor, I preached on that in a funeral service. And over the next couple of weeks, through that particular funeral service, we saw about 11 people coming to faith in Jesus. It's very, very special to me, that verse. And the third contrast is between what is seen and what is unseen. So when we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary and what is unseen is eternal. You see, Jesus told us not to lay up our treasures on earth because they rust and they get eaten by moths and they get destroyed. They're tangible, yes, but they're also temporary. Rather, Paul says, fix your eyes on what is unseen because that is eternal. I love the way that the message puts this. So we're not giving up. How could we? Even though on the outside it often looks like things are falling apart on us, on the inside... Where God is making new life, not a day goes by without his unfolding grace. These hard times are small potatoes <laughs> compared to the coming good times, the lavish celebration prepared for us. There's far more here than meets the eye. The things that we see now are here today, gone tomorrow. But the things we can't see now will last forever. Do you remember Peter asking Jesus, who was walking on the water towards them at night, Bid me come, let me come. And Jesus said, come. And my Bible tells me that Peter was walking on the water to Jesus. And then he looked around and he saw what the wind was doing to the waves and he started sinking when he took his eyes off Jesus. And many people are drowning in life through lack of purpose, through the inability to see any sense in their sufferings, through focusing on the wrong things, through attempting to build their lives on secular values. And the antidote is this. Fix your eyes on what is unseen and eternal. Or as the writer to Hebrews says, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith. And as Christians, time has gone, <laughs> oh my word. As Christians, 
We might get knocked down, but we'll never get knocked out. We might feel that we're losing heart. But as we reflect upon what this chapter teaches, and embraces it, as we embrace its truth, we will persist, persist, and we will be triumphant. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that we have the privilege of studying together these great words of Paul. And thank you that Paul was so secure in you to write them in the first place. And we pray, Lord, that when we are tempted, we will not lose heart, but we might learn and embrace the lessons of this chapter and encourage ourselves in the fact that we might get knocked down, but with you on our side, we'll never get knocked out. Amen.